Hey everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of My First Sketch at MyFirstSketch.com. I'm Josh Hyam. Any questions, thoughts, recommendations, feel free to email me at Josh at MyFirstSketch.com. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. You can like the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MyFirstSketch. And it would be really cool if you rate five stars and leave a review on whatever platform you choose. I haven't talked to you since Philly Sketchfest a few months ago. Thanks so much for all the acts that performed. The crowds were great. The shows were fun. The community was so cool. Thanks to everyone involved. And we'll have information on the 2023 edition real soon. It's a cool time to say Sketchy Bader is coming back to Zoom Friday, January 27th. 10 p.m. in the East, 7 in the West. All the information that you would need to know is available at sketchybader.com. And we'll also be having a live Sketchybader in Philly on Sunday, February 19th at 2 p.m. We're heading back to Tattooed Mom on South Street, so it is 21 and over. But grab a drink, grab a sandwich at the bar, and let's read some sketches. Sketchybader.com is where you'll find all the information and the Facebook events and everything for the next two Sketchybaders. Today's guest is Mike Spiegelman, currently a member of The Great Difficulties. The Great Difficulties will be performing at SF Sketchfest along with Please Leave the Bronx on Sunday, February 5th at 8 p.m. Pacific time. It's a special show featuring two acts that performed at the very first SF Sketchfest over 20 years ago. And Mike and Colin, who make up The Great Difficulties, have been coming to the Sketchy Baiters on Zoom almost since the beginning. So we've all been able to see their set evolve and get rewritten and tuned up over the last year or so. So it's been pretty cool to see. Mike's first sketch is called Cheeseman. Mike reads the role of Alf and Cheeseman, as well as sings the theme song. I read the announcer and all the minor roles like a Russian diplomat, a kid, as well as give you whatever stage direction you need to know. So let's get to the sketch. Some guy with a mangy sock. Hi, I'm Alf. Tell me a joke. Fuck you. Come home this season to NBC for the best of Saturday morning cartoon. Kids, check out these shows. When high school geek Peter Handler was at the science fair, he was bitten by a radioactive can of cheese whiz, giving him amazing powers. Powerful cheese balls, sturdy cheese strings, and great cheese taste on a cracker. Cheese man, cheese man, does whatever a cheese can. Spins the cheese, any size, catches thieves, just like cheese. Watch out! Here comes the cheese man, in the heat of the night, at the scene of the crime. Like a streak of light, he arrives just like cheese. Watch out, here comes the cheese, wherever you going, here comes the cheese man! Cheese man walks down the high school corridor with green hairy teeth, getting taunts from other kids. Hey, who cut the cheese? (laughs) (laughs) Someone dumps Cheeseman's books. Boy, if only I could show off my real identity, then everyone would like me. But I can't. As he picks up the books. And now there's a table on the other side of the stage with a Russian diplomat. Senator! This meal is delicious. Could you pass the Parmesan cheese? The senator gasps. This looks like a job... For Cheese Man. Cheese Man sneaks out off stage and runs into the co- runs to get into costume. He arrives in the dining room. I'll save you. He proceeds to scrape his arm to get cheese on the dish. He salutes and exits. Meanwhile, while our hero was checking his breast for lumps, something nefarious was happening in a nearby warehouse. Man with a big garbage bag with his back to the audience pretends to adjust knobs and pull levers. He turns around to reveal himself to be the green gob. The garbage bag covers his entire body, save his arms, legs, and mouth. He has googly eyes. He's laughing maniacally. Oh, tune in, kids, to see Cheese Man once again foil the plans of the Green Gob on the amazing adventures of Cheese Man. Oh, Willie. My name is Samantha Russell. I'm a sketch comedian, and I have a prop and costume hoarding problem. So I figured the best way to get it under control is to start a podcast. On Should I Keep This? I chat with other comedians about their experiences in comedy and our insane prop and costume collections. And on each episode, we both bring a beloved item to discuss whether it's a treasure or just trash. 
Sometimes it turns out no matter how much money or time we spent on a prop, the only thing we should be holding on to are the memories we've made along the way. So check out Should I Keep This? We have new episodes every two weeks available anywhere you get your podcasts. Are you a fan of sketch comedy like Monty Python, Key and Peele, and Saturday Night Live? Have you ever wondered why their sketches are funny? Or maybe why that certain sketch didn't make you laugh? On the comedy podcast Sketch Nerds, we aim to answer those questions while having fun talking about the history and craft of sketch comedy. Every episode features a guest to help us break down our favorite sketches, as well as those submitted by listeners like you. So come nerd out with us and listen to Sketch Nerds at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds. Hey, Mike. Hey, Josh. Uh, so tell me about the sketch. Tell me about Cheese Man. Okay, well, I was in college at Brandeis University, and there was the Boris's Kitchen sketch comedy troupe. And it was the first comedy, original comedy troupe that the college had. And we would do these shows, uh, big shows and same shit show, old shit shows. And I got kind of obsessed with Cheese Man. I think like (laughs) the idea of because Cheese Man evolved into something completely different, unfortunately, which I gained some notoriety in college for not much, but I really liked the theme. I thought it was funny to do the the Spider-Man theme song straight and just change the word to cheese, including that weird in the heat of the night, still the light weird chorus that I never got from the 60s cartoon show. So we would have like uh, it was really good. Like, honestly, I should start from the beginning. Brandeis University had Monty Python troupe, and I was very lucky as a prospective freshman, uh, Nick, who dear guy he he brought me in as a as protective pf and i spent the night at brandeis university nick caber was a member of the boris's kitchen comedy troupe at, at brandeis that did monty python routines so they and just cut co- they just copied and covered yeah monty python yeah you know stuff. you're a fan and you know it by heart and you perform it and you like it and it's the, the whole art of it you know mm-hmm. and but the meeting i went to uh in my senior year of high school there was to break up the group and to become an original sketch group. So I was there in the room when this happened. And it was insane because people were like, listen, we love Monty Python. We think their stuff is really genius. It's not easy to perform it. We want to do, we don't want to do original stuff. We want to do Monty Python bits. And there's other people like we can't evolve. We don't have our own identity. We love sketch comedy. We want to perform it. And it was a heated debate and it was decided to disband the Monty Python troupe. So I actually uh, picked, I wanted to go to Brandeis. I got in and all this stuff. And um, first thing I did was like, I want to go to this troupe I saw from last year. And I joined Boris's Kitchen and it was named after a Russian student who had giant buds in a kitchen strainer, like in his sink. Mm -hmm. So that's how Boris's Kitchen came. And uh, the first thing we did was Faulty Towers. And I was like, man, number two, like guest number two or something like that. And then it became more original. And because it was a school group, you had to take everybody, which was great for me because I wasn't really good at it. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't. I could barely say my line as, as guest two. And one of the things that was that when you wrote sketches, you wanted to include as much people. You had all these people to use. Yeah. So that sketch is a really good example of like. You know, when you're in a sketch group, you kind of want to have a reoccurring character. You kind of want to have, you know, the, the especially if it's serialized, like or whatever. But it, it came out because I liked the song and it was able to do it at Brandeis with, with Boris's Kitchen, uh, the troupe I was in. So that was good. I was going home to New Jersey and my friend Carl, who I, I do the podcast with now, but in the 90s, we had a public access television show on on suburban cable. Uh, tel- I think it was at, uh, Essex County Television. It was called Fish Burgers. It was 20 laughs per minute. Uh, it was our guarantee. And it was a lot of sketches. That's that's too many. It would get 20 laughs a minute. Carl wrote the theme song. Yes, it's 20 laughs a minute. Fish Burgers, 20 laughs a minute. It's 20. We guarantee 20 laughs a minute. Uh, and we had uh, Carl and Mike's party machine. And it was kind of a, you know, remember Nina People's party machine? It was really, Carl and no. Mike's party machine. Uh, it was a show. It was like produced by Arsenio Hall. It was a syndicated show. But we were, we had uh, one. We did the loser dance, 
and Carl introduced the Mighty Cheese Man, and I came out and I sang the song that I did at Brandeis in the dress, but this time I had my shirt off. And uh, I, I do have to stress, I really looked good back then. So, like, <laughs> I had my shirt off. I was like, "Wow, I'm 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 amazing." But it was, you know, cheese now. Come on, come on, kick it. It was like kind of like a bad Donny Wahlberg. It was that pop music thing, and um, so that became. So when I think of Cheese Man now, I think of that kind of rap song uh, or that pop song I, I did uh, for fish, fish burgers, but it did originate as an actual character with a villain uh, for, for Boris's kitchen. It's wild to, like, to think that something so simple as creating a, a fake superhero and kind of parodying the Spider-Man thing. Like, I had so many legs for you. I had like, survived and went on for so long yeah and you know one of the things about the simpsons is that eventually they're gonna do the joke and they're gonna do it great and you know the movie had spider hand uh spider pig yeah where he replaced the word you know man with pig and ours was replacing the word spider with cheese c-a-t-e-z so uh yeah you know it's dated at this point <laughs> you know it's it's been done properly but uh yeah, it was it was kind of fun. I always uh, and the thing that drives me crazy and my old age and it, it really helps me seeing this script is that I never remember that lyric uh, of the 60s Spider-Man theme song where it's like in the still of night, you know, uh, I have to even look at the heat of the night at the scene of the crime, like a streak of light. He arrives just like cheese. So, you know, but I think it's like, hey, bub, there's like another line like that. Yeah, uh, I mean, I have no experience with that that era of spider-man like that original spider-man oh i don't know if, if original is the right word but like that older version of spider-man like all i know is spider-man spider-man right so sure. like that's all that, that's what i assume the entire song is is just like that over and over and over again like they did the marvel had a bunch of 60s uh cartoons that were very reductive like it was fantastic four thing and they all had these great theme songs so that's where the song came from yeah they're they're on disney plus you could they're they're in the bottom tier you know if you keep <laughs> down you'll, you'll eventually get to 60s marvel comics cartoon so tell me about this um you i don't think you you might be the only per the first person i've talked to that had like a public access show yeah so tell me about uh fish burgers more sure absolutely um fish burgers originated from tom tom kroll who i love uh, and Carl Halp, who I love too, uh, they had started a show called Fish Burgers. It was Suburban Public ca Cable. Cable is a two-way street. You see these, you know, to, to prove they're part of the community, they offer a couple of channels that anyone could join. And, uh, you know, here in, San here in San Francisco, in San Francisco in the 90s when I went, you had to do community service. But I think what we did was we, I don't know if we paid for it, but basically they would pick up the camera, like a video camera. This is 80s. It was, it's the show ran from like 87 to 91. And um, the first couple episodes were edited together with Tom's ideas. And he had these sketches. I wasn't really in it much, but we did a bit, which I was in and it's, it's on the site where uh, we were going to egg city hall and we were in Montclair, New Jersey, and we were going to egg city hall. So we first had to get Jerry Bello, who was this guy we knew, and we went broke into his house and, you know, it was all staged, but it was all like, mm -hmm. kind of. and then we were going to egg. We had a map where we showed where City Hall was and we drove up to City Hall. We couldn't wait. And then we cut to a random wall where we threw eggs at and then cut to us running away. Like, we can't believe we did that. <laughs> and it was kind of cool. And I think Tom kind of left it to Carl. Carl got more involved and I got kind of more involved after that. And I was a lot more sketches. Uh, one of my favorite sketches we did was Hamlet. Uh, there is like at um, Eagle Rock Reservation, there's like a castle, Kipps, Kipps Castle, I think it was called in New Jersey. And we went up there as, and we used it as Elsinore. And I had my, you know, I would come back from college uh, anytime back to New Jersey and we would record immediately. And so I had my college Shakespeare book and I'm reading, it was the beginning, like uh, a vast ghost. Like I did, I was the guard. I was like, oh, a ghost. And so Carl was the father and I was like the guard listening and we would do stick. Like I was really drunk. I should tell you, Jess, <laughs> I, I quit drinking a long time ago, but I was really, 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 really drunk. 
And so I did a bit where I put a cigarette in my mouth and while Carl was reading the ghost line, I would try to look for a smoke and he would light it while we talked and uh, I had the light camera to it. But the punchline to the, our Hamlet bit was, uh, oh, the ghost talks to Hamlet and tells, you know, avenge me. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to me, Hamlet, sitting on the toilet. And then Carl pops up as the ghost in front of me. I'm taking a shit. And the ghost is like, you must avenge me. I go, I know that. I get it. Kill the king. You know, even when you're dead, you're pain in my ass. So that was our <laughs> Hamlet bit. And that's that's on YouTube. And there's a bunch of stuff. And like that, the party machine bit was like a real elaborate bit. And this was during the first Gulf War. My dad was covering it as a journalist. So he was in Saudi Arabia. Oh, wow. So it was kind of a strange time. It was. So we had a, my friend John Fonseca dressed up as so damn insane. And it said a bud. He was like, when you say scud. And I remember my dad coming home after this experience and uh i said dad dad you gotta watch this show i did a public access so there's he knows john dressed up as so damn insane saying scud 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 i can see my father's face just like i'm like you know that i'll turn this off i'm so sorry you know <laughs> he was a journalist and he covered but it was during the during that war and my dad was away and i was at college and going back i worked as a banquet hall waiter and i would always have a tuxedo and carl would use that so I covered, there was a lot of war stuff. It was like, I'm here at the Gulf and it would be a Gulf uh, gas station. Yeah. And I'll be in my tuxedo because I had to go to work and we would do this bit and it would go. It was, it was funny stuff. You know, I, I was influenced by my high school. There was a high school class. Uh, our high school kind of had a fame building. We had like a uh, alternative school. Like, so if you couldn't deal with high school there was a couch and you had a program and you would hang out on the couch but also there was an art school in that building as well and i took a tech av class and it was again like using a video camera in 1986 and editing it to make comedy sketches and the guy who ran the class was uh jay curtis who i I unfortunately found out he passed away i looked him up on imdb he had a show in san diego in 1980 called disaster piece theater and what it was was that they the station owned a bunch of movies and they would take the movies and they would re-edit it. So they would dub over it. They would put in subtitles. They would fuck with it. And it was hosted by Jay. And, you know, they would do like flashbacks. But the sketches they would do would be like, Jay walks into a room. Jay says, hey, boss, you're a blockhead. I quit. And they would cut to Jay as the boss and behind the desk with a big block on his head going, what? You know, that was it. And it was really, really funny. And I just think that was a big influence. So when we were doing Fish Burgers, um that kind of came into four and we were writing sketches that way so uh yeah i mean i had done i uh i had done there was a show in new jersey called uncle floyd show i don't know if you know uncle Floyd. i've, uncle I've floyd. heard of but i don't know enough about it big influence and he actually uncle floyd showed up on fish burgers but i wasn't there i was in college at the time mm. i did this whole bit with carl but he had a show when it was like kind of a kid's show he had a uh did ventriloquism poorly but he was a ragtime piano player in a cheap suit or cheapest looking suit and he had this show and it was great you know the ramones would show up and they had fan uh viewer mail and all this stuff and i did a sh- thing on cassette like my first sketch i think i wrote was uh, the Uncle Beaver show because I had buck teeth at the time and it was my me and my friend Car- uh, Taylor and we were doing like sketches so I don't have the cassettes but I do remember doing this awful sketch where I think I had like a Pac-Man machine or someone had a Pac-Man and it had a Pac-Man and we're like hey Pac-Man how you doing whatever it was awful so I learned quickly but it's it's strange to me because I don't have that frame of reference I don't know if if cable access was that like prevalent in philadelphia where i am um but like you, i know like cable with, right you grew up on cable i didn't i didn't oh, have cable right. until i was like 19 or 20 okay <laughs> um so like even all that stuff like i you know if, if you tell me like about nickelodeon shows back in the day i'm like uh, okay like i know mystery science theater comes out of that cable access tradition and like as we move into the 2000s stuff like people like jake fogelnast in new york and chris gethard yeah like have that like chris gethard i know is directly influenced by uncle floyd because of that whole north new jersey thing like like oh yeah i'm sure you know uncle floyd wasn't even public access it was like uhf channel yeah even that like yeah it was 68 and it became like a music mtv channel it was called u68 so prior so when floyd was done 
there was a certain point where NBC was airing live from Newark, it's Uncle Floyd. It was like after Saturday Night Live at 1 a.m., New York City would play Uncle Floyd's show, like a weekly compilation, but it was a daily show. And Jay was telling me that the Disaster Piece Theater ran against Saturday Night Live in 1980, and at one point was got better ratings than the 1980 season of SNL. Oh, I mean, the 1980 season's not something to no. remember very well, but like, uh, since we're bringing up like all that stuff, uh, we kind of skipped over. What were you into growing up? Like, what was your first real like memory of comedy? I, I like to collect comedy records. You know, I, I loved comedy. I loved listening to it. Uh, there was a couple really good record stores in Montclair that had like cheap used records. And I would get like, uh, I remember my friend Boris introduced me to Monty Python, the TV show, and I just blew my mind and you could find their records. But I listened to like a lot of stand up, but I kept going back to the sketch comedy albums, whether it was Cheech and Chong's like Big Bamboo, Wedding Album, uh, Fire Sign Theater. I had tons, mm. dozens of their records and it's this high production. I had a chance to see them live in San Francisco uh, at the Fillmore and it was just a bunch of guys telling puns at that point. You know, live, <laughs> it's a little different, but listening to the, those albums, they had sound effects, they had puns, they had puns on puns. And it was really like you would listen to it repeatedly. You put it on the album, you know, and I liked Stevens and Grinnick was a comedy duo uh, that was on Laugh Records. And, you know, have you tried Marijuana Helper? And a lot of like stuff from Dr. Demento, like uh, I would listen to. So I would pick up these records and then you would realize like used record stores would have like the first Vaughn meter presents the first family. And you listen to it and be like, huh? But there would be like Alan and Rossi, which was this kind of comedy duo doing songs and jokes. And uh, I kept listening to more of the the sketch comedy albums. So I think that's what kind of got me interested in sketch comedy and, um, you know, SCTV. Yeah. You know, Saturday Night Live was a big deal. I think Saturday Night Live is important because it shows America what sketch comedy is, but it's still a television show. It's not a live show. Even though it's broadcast live, it's still filter through television yeah. so they get away with theme songs and repetitive characters and drag out bits and if you ever do that live it's just like oh my god but you know i was absorbing like i was the 80 i was an snl 80 guy like i watched charles rocket curse that night i uh you know watched all the gilbert godfrey episodes i watched then tim kazarinski but i really also loved sctv and i just loved what they did on like they had 90 minutes and they just spent as much money as they can and it was just like pop culture reference over pop culture reference with some other goofy thing. And it was just, I really love that much. A couple of years ago, I went on like an eBay search and I found like this record of Saturday Night Live. I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? This is amazing. And I, I bid on it and I won, but the, the seller didn't like pull through. But then yeah. I did some research and that record was just like a recording off the TV show. I could I could quote you that album by heart. Which... You know, it's Michael O'Donnell I didn't understand I, I didn't think that's what it would be when I first like you thought it would be original like yeah. stuff or song. So, and, and then it occurred to me, I was like, oh wait, no VCRs, not like these records are like the lifeblood of this material lasting. I don't know how popular that album. I listened to it, they did smuckers on it. He uh Michael O'Donoghue had a little Coke, Coca-Cola as life uh commercial added in there, which I guess cocaine, but they had like uh um Chevy Chevy I love when you fall down like mm. you know and uh I think they had highlights of the news it was it was a great album I listened to that repeatedly yeah like I guess I just I, I can't imagine the the world like I, I didn't grow up in where the the LP was such a huge part of the com the comedy world well like Cheech and Chong Big Bamboo had a rolling paper you pull out the wedding album had like photos of them dressed as like a Siamese twin getting married uh and you know there was like the the Monty Python original albums. There was one matching tie and handkerchief I had. I didn't realize that the second side had a multi groove, where it would play. Which I didn't keyboard. know was a thing until I heard about thing. this record. I listened to that album repeatedly, and then I played it on a different record player, and the different track played, and I was like, "What the fuck? How come I don't know this by heart yet?" You know, like I couldn't believe it. So and it didn't occur like, to me that it was just two grooves next to each other, that just depending on where the needle landed. Like yeah. I was like, how do you even do that? That's amazing. Like that's magic. It's magic. And then, well, and then five yeah. years later, I was like, oh, oh, it's very simple instead. Like, 
but it's never like they never really let on. I didn't know at the time. So it was definitely a surprise. Yeah, Mad Magazine had that too. It had like a flexi disc and a magazine where it's a wonderful day. And then halfway during the song, one of three different endings will play about it was a terrible day. You know, your wife left you. So it would depend on which groove it got into. Okay, I didn't even think that was an, an an option. Like that's that's wild. There was a lot of like thought and on the albums when they would come be released. And one of my favorite albums is uh, uh, Bob and Doug McKenzie did a soundtrack album to their yeah. Movie. They recorded two comedy albums, Great White North, which is great, and then uh, the comedy albums. Like this is not our second record, and they just talked you know they just bullshitted for the whole album and played a couple scenes from the movie and played the theme song from the movie but it was just them talking hey shakespeare you know shakespeare horked our script that type of thing it was just really funny they would they uh, would practice so you know there was it was out there it's a lot because like even like my ideas of you know this comedy lps from the 60s 70s 80s like i remember hearing this anecdote that apparently Bob Newhart's first record was the first time he ever performed and they just recorded it and put it right out. Like, I was like, how, how, how is that a thing? How is that like, that's amazing. Yeah. The button down mind of Bob Newhart. I had that record. He had the, he was always on the phone, you know, or he was uh, the instructor of a driver constructor. It would always play off a silent partner, which is, which is like now whenever someone has that idea of doing like a phone call sketch, I was like, you can't do it. Bob Newhart perfected the 60 years ago. Yeah. Like well, there's certain are... tropes in comedy that I refuse to let people do around me. Like uh, someone wrote like a, a side effects sketch where like half the joke was like the side effects of a drug. I was like, uh, Steve Martin wrote a short story that destroys this and you'll never be as good as it. So don't tr- like, yeah, find something else. Like it's well-worn I... territory. I feel like you have an audience and if you're doing a show, a live show, or if you do it, you kind of want to do something that they don't expect. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to have them guess what's going to happen. I ask everybody, we mentioned SNL in the eighties and how you gravitate more towards SCTV in that time. But I do ask everybody who is your favorite SNL cast member all the time. Well, I mean, Keenan Thompson's amazing. The guy has been doing sketch comedy all his life. And, uh, yeah. you know, you missed him on Nickelodeon. And I think I was a little too <laughs> old for that, but I, I love good burger and, uh, I don't know if you've seen Fat Albert. It's one of the great bad movies, and he was really, really professionally good in it. But he's like a go-to glue. I, but I would say, like for me, I love Phil Hartman. Uh, yeah. I think anytime Phil Hartman showed up, I would just kind of smile. Um, you know, I was a big John Belushi fan. I, I think he just had this crazy energy on, uh, for a live show that kind of went through. But you know, I'm Tim Kazarinski. I'm Team Kazarinski. You know, uh, I love him from Police Academies, and he would perform with a monkey. You know that that season was probably the one I like. The Gary, jeez, uh, oh, the one that's like lost well, in the Kazarinski 80s. stays on. Like of those like early eighties guys, like Kazarinski's there for like three or four years. Yeah, roughly. Oh, yeah. Like, well, like he was able to dig a little bit of a trench in for himself. Yeah, he 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 got himself in there. It was like Robin Duke. Um, there was one performer, Tony Rosada. Tony Rosada. Who was a Canadian was, who they stole from SCTV. Yeah, right. He was on SCTV with Robin yeah. Duke. I, I think Robin Duke was on it, but he was on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then he was on SCTV. He was one of the few that did both, you know, and they were like, you know, Martin Short later. I, I would say like that's that season with like uh, Mary Gross and... Um, I guess Julia Louise Dreyfus was on it that season, but the Tim Kazarinski years are, are are probably my fondest. And none of the humor was good, uh, but you know it was. They were really kind of a fun crew. And you know Eddie Murphy when he was on, God, Eddie Murphy was great on that show. Yeah. Like he, even when he came on as a guest recently, he was just amazing. You know, I do, I do want to go back with everything. Well, not everything being on Peacock, but like to the most that they can without paying a lot of money for music rights. Like, I do want to go back and visit those, like, kind of lost years where, like, I've seen bits and pieces, but I don't think I've, like, seen, like, a full season of that time. Peacock apparently has all the seasons of SNL, so you can kind of dig yourself into it. So, they yeah. did this thing where they kind of course corrected by putting, like, Randy Quaid and Robert Downey Jr., these kind of bigger names, you know, the whole Harry, Harry Shearer was on the fifth season. And then he, and then he came back for that, yeah, came like, back and that, that superstar like, season where they had Billy Crystal season. and, yeah. Yeah. By that point, I was like, but I do think like the Mike Meyer years and Adam Sandler and, and Chris Farley, and that was fantastic. You know, like uh, Jan Hooks, I've always loved and uh, 
Mary Shannon. I was gonna say superstar, but Mary Shannon, I always like Molly Shannon, yeah. Mo- Molly but Shannon, that's even she's a little later than that, but like yeah, she was later. You mentioned like Boy Scouts, and I, my first like of, of course it's not professional like experience, but my first experience of performing is around a campfire with Boy Scouts yeah. or church camp. So and you say you have this weird Boy Scout story, so let's well, hear the Boy I, Scout story. Know, your show is my first sketch, and I feel like Boy Scouts was my first sketch. I didn't write it, so it wasn't like the first sketch I wrote, but it was the first that really introduced me in the world of sketch comedy, like performing and such. We had a, mm-hmm. we were in Montclair, there was a troop called Troop 12, and it was like the third oldest troop in the world, and it was Troop 13 that was the second oldest, and they were nearby, <laughs> but there was a very competitive troop. Troop 12 was very competitive, and you would have, like, we would do the jamboree, but throughout the year, you would be judged on like your camping skills, your walking skills, your cooking while camping. And I got a lot of shit because I used all the brown sugar to make the apple, baked apples on the fire and they needed the brown sugar for something else. So they lost points. So it was, (laughs) I was in the beaver patrol and uh, the beaver patrol was like very competitive and they were really always pissed off at me because I would screw up a nod and they would lose points and it would really get to them. So we were performing for a talent show and it was a sketch we were going to do. And this is the first time in my life that the sketch was being judged the same way that the Boy Scouts was judging me building a pitching a tent or cooking in the in the outdoors. So they were going to rate the troop, uh, the patrol, the Beaver Patrol. So the sketch itself was a game show parody, uh, which I don't know what your opinion on game show parodies. Love them, but love them, right? So this was the first time I did a real sketch, and I had a non-speaking role. And I played like the janitor that hung around. And of course, in my mind, I felt like I was the mascot of Cracked. You know, like remember Sylvester? Yeah. The... So that's how I kind of played it in my head. So it would be like, you win. And I remember the only joke I really remember it was a Chappaquiddick joke. I don't know if you remember Chappaquiddick with Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy yeah. Yeah. So he got into a, a car, went into a uh, some pond or, you know, he, his car submerged in, in Martha's Vineyard. He got out, but a 26-year-old died. And, you know, it, it was a big blight on him, but, it, you know, the family was horrified and it became big news. So it was like one of the prizes you win was like a Mary Joe, whatever her name was, you know, or like a trip to uh, Chappaquiddick, courtesy of Ted Kennedy. <laughs> so I, it was like a right-wing joke. And uh, I remember that. So we went and we performed and everybody fucked up their lines they didn't remember the lines right and to the point where i thought well here i am sylvester from the mascot janitor of <laughs> i should say something so i just i went up and i said you got the line wrong it should be and well it was a disaster and we went back to the basement cave of the troop leader and he goes you the line was this you the line was that and he points to me he goes you don't correct people on stage. <laughs> Holy shit, right? <laughs> and uh, so I was like, you're absolutely right. You got to stay in character no matter what. You can't break like that. And uh, so I, I learned it. I had a falling out with them because I was initiated. They tied me to a pole in the basement. You know how the basement pole uh, pulled my pants down. I had my underwear tickled me and then went outside and played soccer, which I watched from the uh window so i complained and i was told to kind of buck up and uh i quit that troop and i joined troop 13 where we did nothing we were never judged we never had a competition <laughs> and uh i got a subscription to boy's life which lasted me like seven years so i read grin and barrett another influence <laughs> on my comedy the humor section of boy's life so it was strange like you know god bless all those guys and stuff like that but that's my first com- sketch comedy was through competitive boy scout uh it's jammery yeah i don't um, think ever in my time at boy scouts like we ever had those campfire skits like as competitive things like that's that's wild to me. Like, um, after brandeis and stuff you stay in boston for a little bit yeah i so i was really uh involved with the sketch group i i, I took time off from college to kind of make amends and uh get some money going and i graduated a semester late but i stayed in waltham and um I had two, you know, I had a lot of good friends like uh, Josh Sleepster, but I, I also had Aaron Ring and Leah Greisman 
Leia and Aaron and I started doing sketch groups together. We wanted to do one to perform at clubs. We had a group shortly called Pregnant to Boot, which I just love the name. Uh, I, at the time, I was like, that's funny. Uh, but we put in an ad uh, in the paper looking for, we, we set up our own outside professional, not professional, but this is outside college uh, comedy group. And it was called Mass Hysteria because we were Boston based. So it was Mass mm. Hysteria. And a lot of people who I, I never met prior uh, joined. And it was really like a lot of fun. And we, Aaron and I worked, uh, Aaron and Leo together. And it was like guys like uh, Corey, who I just met after 30 years again, uh, Bernie and like Duarte and uh, Charles, who was a chef who stayed a chef in Boston, but I worked for him. We did shows and we would do like clubs. We did Faneuil Hall. Like that was probably one of my favorite, like, the Faneuil Hall, we performed in the hall, like where the the, the fathers were, and we did a little show. And it was, you know, you had to project. You had to project. You were in Faneuil Hall. You had, you had no mics or anything like that. You really had to do like your Ben Franklin eighteen hundred voice to so that people could hear. <laughs> uh, we, I think, one of the highlights was at the time David Cross had Cross Comedy, and it was yeah. every Monday Catch Rising Star, it was Cross Comedy, and they're fucking amazing i mean I, i'm not no lie it was just fucking amazing stuff and they would close on a bit like the functional alcoholic like all you need is a cheeseburger in the morning and you're all set you know and uh it was just funny stuff and they left they went to a different club uh, uh in, in the theater district so we had an opportunity to be the sketch group and our sketch show was about i don't know two hours it was long and actually it was a lot. And so, but at the time I'm like, that's more bang for your buck, more sketches. Like, I don't know what I was talking about, but it, it was good. It got to a certain point, like I was ready to move and um, I had a chance to go home and then to New Jersey. And then a friend from college, Josh, we were going to drive to San Francisco, I think. So I also like, I loved it. It was it, those sketch groups, like in early twenties and stuff like that. It's like, you make friends, you, you hang out like Boston, when it snows you just stay at someone's house so you, yes. you know and I, I made a lot of friends and uh it was good and it's weird working as a group you know you don't get paid the same amount if you get a paid gig you split it but it's a lot of like give and take and uh I think I was when I got to San Francisco I was like I just want to be a stand-up comedian I'm the only person you know I think one problem I had was stereotypes like using being ironic about stereotypes you're doing the stereotype because you're being ironic as a commentary. And at a certain point, you're just like, no, I'm not this, you know, you remove that. Yeah. You're thinking you're doing something ironically, but you also run the, the, the risk of like an audience member thinking you're, you're in on this and you're being yeah. like, you're just being racist for, for being racist. Like, yeah, it doesn't come across. It's not what you, the intention is, you know, I, I mean, I love irony and a lot of it, you know, a lot of people now they'll say like, well, that's inappropriate. You know, sometimes it would be performed as a sketch where the contrast was this innocuous thing and then this awful thing combined and it's shocking and you laugh off of that. But after a while, it's petty, you know, it's not really, there's other ways of doing it. I mean, we all have to kind of evolve and shit like that. Does the move to San Francisco like work based? Like, do you have a job out there that you're going to, or is it? I was I was strictly young, for comedy. I was young and I wanted to. I get know San Francisco is a hotbed. Yeah. Let's go there. Yeah. Let's get there. So I got there when I was 25 years old, and uh, we had gone through all the hostels. I I had just made the limit or whatever. It didn't matter. Uh, and I got to San Francisco, and I started. You know, I we found an apartment, and I got a temp job. I got a job, and I'm in the city, and I was like, I'm going to go do stand up, and. You know, I moved there two months after the Holy City Zoo closed, and there was a real comedy community, and there was a real kind of edgy style, like a real kind of yeah, I don't know, it's really strong style. And a lot of big people, they started something called Nervous Laughter. Uh, Harmon Leon kind of started it off, but you know, Dan Dion was involved. There was a lot of big people, and when I first moved there, I started going to these shows. It was an open mic, and I did my first stand-up sketch. It was a stand-up thing. It was just awful, but. I was watching these guys and they were just do like, it's not the alternative comedy of the nineties. You know, they, a lot of them went to LA afterwards and that became this, the scene. Uh, but there was a lot of sketches and a lot of like really great stuff. It was like, 
Vernon Chapman, uh, the Wonder Shows and guy, he was yeah. doing sketches. Uh, Blank Patch and Pan Oswald were a team. There was Jeremy Kramer. There was Jeff Hatz, uh, Liz White, and and uh, Bridget Swartz and um, uh, Andrea Lee or Eleven. Uh, but Bill Burnett and Scott Malone, these guys were just like really creative and really funny. Uh, and they would do like we got to a point they were doing theme shows. So they would have like high school assembly. So Ron Lynch would be the principal. And he would uh, here at the assembly of knowledge and he would bring on people. So people would be characters uh, like and the humor was like it was, you know, uh, Bruce Cherry. I love Bruce Cherry. He had a bit where he came on, he, he hit his arm. So it looked like he, he was missing. He was missing an arm and he was the coach and he was saying that he didn't like it. The someone that the team took his arm off his uh, uh, and stuck it up his ass. And, and and he goes, uh, I also didn't enjoy the impromptu cheer from the cheerleaders. Two, four, six, eight, shove them up in the ass. Need I remind you that doesn't even rhyme. You know, it was just like, and like Don Prazo, this is some silly stuff. Like he was a hygiene teacher named Gene. And there was another hygiene teacher named Gene who smelled. And how did he break the news? He would always be like, hygiene, hygiene. And it's just, and it was like, I don't know if you know a comedy duo, Lankin Earl. I don't know if you know Jim Earl. I've but heard of Jim Earl. Jim Earl is great. And Barry, Barry and Lank is great. And they had a comedy duo of, they would say like, we're the comedy duo of bad and worse. I kill people and I eat them. And uh, they were just like <laughs> really funny and caustic, I guess is the stuff. And so there would be like a rodeo roundup. There would be like the prison show. And it's exactly what you think. And so it would be like, different theme shows and it was performed throughout the city in different locations sometimes at midnight and they were really creative and i you know initially it's it's comics are very cold you know they would have the open mic at midnight after the 10 o'clock show and the performers would move their chairs so the backs of the chair would face the open mic yeah. stage so but it took me a long time to kind of just be part of it and you know at, at a certain point everyone kind of left for los angeles and those people here kurt weitzman was great he did a a, a sitcom called kurt and i got to play his junkie roommate uh, next door neighbor stuff like that uh it was really a, like a big influence when that kind of waned i got there was a mic at the marsh cafe uh, the marsh theater in, in the mission district and they had a little cafe and they called it the mock cafe because it wasn't really and it had a stage and it would be open mic there. And I got involved and I started a sketch comedy night there Friday and Colin was hosting it. And it was like one hour open mic of stand up, one hour showcase, then one hour open mic for sketch. I'm really proud of that sketch comedy open mic weekly and then a sketch showcase. And I would try to book groups and, you know, there was a lot of uh, Colin and, and I and Al Madrigal and uh, Kamal Bell was in it. And uh, Mike Strong, we were the Fresh Robots, and we were right, performed. So yeah, yeah. Tell me about Fresh Robots because I've heard of between you know because well, you've been probably. on sketch, you've been with us in Sketchbeater since you know like day four. Yeah, like back in 2020 when we started doing it, and like you know I I know you and Colin as great difficulties or whatever you're calling yourselves now. The greatest, uh, as you um. But I, I've heard of Fresh Robots, like so Fresh Robots. So what? Yeah. How did that grow out of that? Mock we were doing cafe sketches, show? and you know, uh, Colin would be there, and Al would be there, and uh, a guy named Mike Strong was there, and we started working together on sketches, and we became a sketch group. And Kamal was a member for a while, and he wrote a great bit. Uh, I wouldn't be. I'm not gay, but if I was gay, I'd be gay for Kobe. That was a, a really big bit that. Uh, <laughs> we had uh that he wrote and we would perform there every week and one nice thing about performing is that we would edit our material based on laughs so we would get our lines down and if a line is weak we would tweak it next time and if it got a really strong laugh we would keep it so the sketches would evolve and it's something i really miss now is that like we had feedback and the one thing it was it was part of the mission district and there was a community and people kept coming back it became on the radar. Robin Williams showed up one night and he was there with Jeff Bolt and he asked if uh, him and, and Jeff Bolt could perform. And I said, yeah, well, you know, Mr. Williams, you could perform. I'm sorry. I don't have time for, you know, your friend, but if you could do it. And he performed in this very tiny, it was a closet. Uh, you know, I think it's uh, the story goes, it's the elevator for the marsh now. 
but the space was very small and Robin Williams performed in it. And I told my friend, Bruce Cherry, I said, I told him the story. He goes, he goes, you said no to Jeff Bolt. I go, what? He goes, you said no to Jeff Bolt. I said, I said, yes, to Robin Williams. He goes, but his friend was Jeff Bolt. Don't you know who Jeff Bolt is? I go, no. And then I learned very quickly who he was. He's like a very old school San Francisco comic. Very funny. He did these uh, car commercials with like some Niners star. Like he was known in the area. So I've, I, you know, I got shit on it. But Robin Williams would show up again. And he would go and it was, you know, I would, I would bring him up. And groups would, would be drunk saying, hey, Nanu, Nanu, like heckle him. But he was fantastic. And he was such a sweetheart. And it was amazing. Like, I've never, you know, I seen his act and I, I, I knew who Robin, uh, Jonathan Winters was, but his style is completely different from what we do. You know, yeah. that Robin Williams, that Robin Williams, like Jonathan Winters style, where you could just see him like feeding off of everything and, and coming up with material. I, I was amazed. So we very quickly became, you know, people were coming and we were named best place to see Robin Williams uh, from the, <laughs> the then San Francisco Bay Guardians, best of the Bay. And it was a big deal. And, you know, Us Weekly called me and I told him about it. And apparently Robin Williams was pissed, but I was the one who uh, le- who talked. I was the inside source. So I, 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 we were covered by Us Weekly. It was good. You know, uh, Sean Kelly, one of the groups was Please Leave the Bronx. And they were one of the original groups. And uh, it was with my future sister-in-law, Melinda Bailey in there. And we, I did I did a show, like I called it Sketch Fest. I had it in January. I figured people were done spending money and they could spend it on themselves. And it was just the groups that I had been working with, like the Meehan Brothers, Please Leave the Bronx, White Nose Radio Theater, I think. And uh, I did it. It was very small. At that point, my friend Sean Kelly from Please Leave the Bronx bought a theater. I think this was like just after 9-11 and things were cheap. Like, so he bought his own theater and asked me to be part of it. So I left the marsh, you know, very okay. suddenly there was like a haiku tunnel screening party that I was going to go to. And I just, I, I bailed on the marsh and I knew that totally false people who I believe were with the, were doing a sketch fest and they had similar people. I mean, there was only so many groups and I was like, God bless you. I'm doing Spanganga theater. Good, good for you to do that. And um, the first sketch fest happened, we got it in the newspaper, which is a big deal, but I was really broke. I didn't have any money. And uh, so I, the first night I performed, I hadn't eaten two days. I like ate cookies and I got shit for it. Like I was stealing their cookies. And then the next day, I never told this story. I had, I scraped up enough money to buy some like Hacky Mao at house, uh, a King of Thai that was nearby the theater. And my stomach was like, what are you doing? What is this food? Like it was contrasting and I got really sick. And before the show, I threw up in the back patio of this, of the theater. So you don't have to put that part in. I never <laughs> told anybody that, uh, but it was exciting. They, they did a great job. And I love like San Francisco sketch fest. Everyone involved is, you know, my age or what have you gone beyond and above and beyond what I, I think anyone could do producing a, a festival like the names they got and the shows that they have. I, I, it's amazing. So I'm always happy to be part of it. We were in the first group, you know, the Fresh Robots was one of the mem- uh, original performers uh, along with Please Leave the Bronx. Our show in February is for their 20th anniversary. So, you know, it's original performers of the, of the sketch fest. We'll be calling an IAS the great difficulties formerly of the Fresh Robots and Please Leave the Bronx. It, it's wild to think of like I say this as like a 37 year old like I can't imagine having a creative endeavor survive or evolve the way it has for you over the last 20 years like that like we're like, please don't leave the Bronx to celebrating 20 years you and Colin have been working together for that long which I mean we're going to talk about a little bit but like the two of you live on opposite coasts right now so I can't imagine like how that works as writing partners completely digitally on cyber codes it's it's so wild yeah. to me well we we went through a lot i mean the fresh robots were big we did show uh, we had a week at the punchline i think it's because kamal was in there too that didn't help it helped that kamal and al uh, were there uh but you know it was it was a big thing and then at a certain point it just stopped it ended we went our separate ways you know uh 
uh, Al kind of blew up on his own and Al later uh, blew up. He wasn't even part of the group at that point, but we stopped. And I know that Colin started a sequel 3000, got into the fest. I hosted uh, like auditions for the second annual sketch fest and it was a disaster. I, someone, my troop member wasn't there. We had someone else, God bless him, join in. It just didn't work. And I was really embarrassed. I was bare, you know, some club owner was shit was there in the audience talking about what a lousy comedian I was during my set. It was like, it was just a bad experience, but, um, you know, anyway, so that there a little bitter grapes there, but, uh, <laughs> uh, my point is that Colin and I like, we kind of not necessarily had a falling out, but I've known him for years. And so we've gone through a lot. And at a certain point, we weren't working together. We just weren't. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I came up with the Laundry Basket and Spiegelman comedy duo, where I performed to a laundry basket that doesn't speak, was that it wasn't Colin. It was just a laundry basket. I can just, you know, it was my idea of like, I could just work by myself. And Colin and I kind of, by the 10th anniversary of the uh, San Francisco Sketchfest, um, they asked all the original groups, the six groups that performed for the, their Sketchfest show uh, to join. And we said, yeah. And um, we had, by that point, we warmed up, you know, and he, wait till you hear his story. Like he wouldn't tell me anything. Like he was, but he did open up and he did talk about it on his Tumblr page and just, he went through a lot and, uh, you know, when he was, we were still in the Bay, we would do the shows and then he went to Florida and I was in San Francisco, but we kind of, we kind of know each other. Like I, our comedy is not necessarily like big props and, you know, sketch comedy. If you have the props in the costume, the audience immediately knows what you're doing once the set starts and you don't have to worry about that. You can get right to the heart of it. With Colin and I, like, we like to go back and forth and, Sometimes, so we don't even bother with sketches with sets or, or costumes because we don't really have time. And like the sound effects are horrible because you have to rely on someone else who's just looked at the script. It's not television. It's not going to work. You know, you're better off not having a sound cue, if anything. But right. so when we write together, like I'll write something, he'll complain to me, uh, he'll write back on it. And we kind of go back and forth. And you can kind of, you've seen our sketches, you can kind of tell who's who sometimes. And a lot of times <laughs> you can't, like it just kind of evolves. But we work uh, through Zoom, uh, we record each other. I, I have an audio cassette I listen to of, uh, of Colin's lines. And sometimes it's Colin saying them, sometimes it's just me saying it. And then a space. And I rehearse by saying my line. If I don't get it right, I start from the beginning. And then when I work, that's, with Colin, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, because whenever I like was in a show, I was I always recorded my own lines, and would listen to the recording my own lines to make sure I had the right order and the right flow to it. It never occurred to me to record the opposite, so that I could react to it. I really yeah. like that process. Well, because the thing is, like, I don't want to be reacting, but I do. You know, I am. I don't want to be waiting for the line. But I do want to know what the conversational flow is. And I also want to wait for the line. So when I hear myself, when I hear the line and I say it and this and that, when I'm done after six or seven times, I go, what is this conversation? You know, how how is this a natural conversation? And that way, when I try to do with Colin, at this point, I'm just holding a conversation, even though I know the direction is going. So I don't feel like, I don't know, there's been times where I'm on stage and I'm just waiting for the guy to say lollipop so I can say my my line. Right. Like, yeah. And that was always one of my like downfalls was always like, instead of being fully in and listening to the thing, I'm just waiting for that code word at the end to trigger my next time for me to open my mouth. Like, and I feel like people can notice that that's what I'm doing is I'm waiting for that lollipop yeah. so that I can say whatever stupidity is next for me. Well, I mean, I'm a big SCTV fan. Harold Ramis is a terrible performer. And he would stand there with John Candy and Eugene Levy and all those guys. And you could see him breathe through his mouth. You know, the command was a genius, but he was there, you know, and I, I call attention to it because that's exactly what I do on stage. I'm the Harold Ramis in it, among the other people sometimes because I'm standing there on stage, breathing through my mouth, waiting for my line or just like, what? Beaver, you have a gun? You know, like I can't, uh, I don't know. I'm not, worried. So, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> with... You know, fresh robots, you know, falling apart and, you know, that that time where you and Colin were on the best terms um, and you, you create it, you know, Spiegelman Laundry Basket or Laundry, laundry Basket, basket Spiegelman, 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 
that you give yourself second billing in that how much is like stand-up becoming a part of your life because you had mentioned earlier that like that that first bit of cheese and what you did by yourself was your yeah. first like your introduction to doing stand-up or what you would consider stand-up because it's a solo act doing a character it's it a stand-up as anything else's there isn't really a, a, a sketch comedy open mic. I mean, I, I love the sketch fest, but that's once a year. And so there, it was easier to do stand up. I think like stand up, you know, I really did do a go at it and where I would try to get weeks and get paid work. And um, I always still love sketch comedy. And I, I really think like ultimately at the end of the day, I would rather just do sketch. You know, when the sketch fest was doing stand up showcases in addition, I got to a point where I like I just would be, feel happier to do sketch than you know and laundry basket of speaking one got to do one year at the festival which was fantastic and I got to perform with the laundry basket with laundry basket but you know I don't I I feel more satisfaction from doing sketch than than stand up and but stand up is a as a great form you know I I respect the audience and I'm performing to an audience. I, I have no other reason not to do this other than to have an audience there to, to feed off and meet halfway or what have you. So like stand up for me is all about that. It's trying to connect with the crowd and trying to have my voice be as honest as possible, which has taken me decades to sound like who I am and what I think is funny and that I will meet you halfway. And, you know, if you don't think it's funny, it's not that I didn't try. I didn't, yeah. do the professional thing but i respect that and you know because i think a lot of people aren't funny but I, I i live my life you know i don't heckle it but i think uh it's just different styles sometimes but i try to be accessible i try to reach so stand-up has really been a good way of doing it the issue is that like stand-up comedy and producing a show kind of you know i was producing a stand-up show and i was known as the guy who produced the show and i i couldn't get my own stuff going and it was just yeah. like you know, and the show was failing. I wasn't bringing in a crowd and people still like, oh, I'm so bitter. I saw the show listed on Facebook and you didn't ask me, what are you talking about? It's a sad sack show, you know, like um, I did a lot of sketch shows after uh, one thing with Melissa, uh, my wife, Karen Spiegelman does a sketch show. Uh, her sister and two others are too good for you. This female group and uh, boy band and they did like a, a show, which I got to be involved in. It's really good stuff. And they write sketches together. I've written sketches with Melinda. We were the bitter show. So, and Colin was involved in this. We did two shows. One was Monster in the Well. There's a Chuck Norris movie where this like serial killer who's like Jason quality, he finally throws him in a well and the guy can't escape. And that's how it ends. But he's a monster. He's immortal. So the bit was this town has this killer in their well and they hang out in the well. And Colin came on as Chuck Norris and played him as like as wooden as possible. It was really funny. Well, we did another show called Road Trip to, to Pluto, where Pluto being pissed off, not being a planet, kidnaps Terry Gross. That was the premise. But we did it at the Four Star Movie House. This is part of the Fringe Festival, which is this 1923 movie theater out on 25th Avenue by the ocean. You know, central, 20 blocks on the ocean, but this old school theater. And the guy at the time who owned it, frankly, let us perform sketch show at this old like uh, theater. It had no backing. Like the stage was up here. He actually built a staircase after the show to make sure people can get on the stage. But there's no back wall. So when you're performing, if you go too far back, you're going to fall like 20 feet behind the screen. So we got to perform there. And I, I thought that was great. That was uh, it was a fringe show, but it was a bring your own theater fringe show. So we were not going to put your sketch group in our friends festival but if you find a space but we yeah. found the four star and it was great and i thought it was a really a better show for it so you know uh tell me about your current podcast you have it here brand as l-w-a-f-l-m-o-y-t i don't know what that that's means. right l-w-a-f-l-m-o-y-t is the acronym for the podcast so we have to use that name but it's short for let's watch a full-length movie on youtube excuse me Carl, my friend from the uh, since you know way back when, Public Access and I, we watch a movie on YouTube, and the idea is that you would listen to the podcast and watch the movie on okay. YouTube at the same time, so it's all synced up. And a lot of it is based on the fact that I love movies and I, I do like bad movies and cult movies, but a lot of them you don't have access to it. You know, imagine a world where you don't have access to it, but you have books that tell you about it. So I'd read about these movies. Oh. 
Joan Rivers directed a film. It was called Rabbit Test. It had Billy Crystal as a first pregnant man. And I would say, wow, I great. I would love to see it. So YouTube has it. You could type in Rabbit Test. It's there. So the podcast is basically movies I always wanted to see. We just watched them on YouTube. So it's been going on for six years. We've done it live a couple of times for the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Uh, we get, you know, uh, oh, that's, I don't want to flex my numbers, but I think it's, it's decent-ish, but it's been going on for a while. <laughs> I don't know. I, I have to take a look. I, I think it's like 7,000 people per episode, 750. Oh, that's not bad at all. Not bad at all. Yeah. But it's been going on for, Carl watches the movie three times, four times. He researches it online, checks out stuff on, on video about it. And then, uh, so I try not to watch the movies so I can kind of come in fresh. So he'll talk about, you know, the movie and this and that and the storyline and, and the behind the scenes. And we get to chat and it's fun when we get to talk about something other than the actual movie. Okay, to get a little deep as we close up here. I mean, you mentioned a bit of it, but like, all right, first off, uh, if you're a new sketch comedy writer, what would be your advice for them? What would would your, like, what would be a tip that you would give to a new sketch comedy writer? I would say trust yourself. Okay, trust number one, trust no one. You yourself are your own institution and you should not be deterred. And you're going to eat a lot of shit and you're going to feel like a lot of stuff you write is crap. It is. It honestly is. You know, <laughs> the comic tool book, I was going looking through my old sketches and I found a photocopy of the rules. And it was like this thing where you write 10 ideas and you scrap them and maybe you save one. And it's always like some kind of conflicting thing, like a vampire who suntans or some shit like that. It actually helps. So I, I would my advice is to trust yourself. If you if you are writing a sketch, you are funny enough to write the sketch. You just have to do it. But uh, read it out loud. Hear the language. You know, I sent you that speech therapist. I am so embarrassed by that sketch I wrote in like you know thirty years ago because no one talks that way, and it's boring. You know, like that was one thing. Listening to the audience, you could hear like long clumps, and you go cut it out. You know, yeah. so my, my advice is trust yourself on it. Uh, you're going to fail constantly. Nothing you're going to write is going to be funny until something you write is going to be funny. So feel free to like keep the scraps, you know, you reuse something you wrote, some kind of throwaway joke, or, you know, you write a bit and it's great and it just has too many gaggy gags. And yeah, just to get to the point, you got to take them out. And you're like, I love these jokes, save them, you know, maybe you can use them again or something, something will evolve from it. But I would just say, trust yourself, trust your voice and respect the audience. They're not going to sit through anything more than three minutes, maybe, you know, right. feel your vibe. It took me a long time to get to this point. Yeah, I, I forget which show it is, but some show has a thing called, like some TV show had a thing in the writer's room called a candy jar, where if a joke wasn't working in that particular episode, they would take it out, but put it aside and leave it because it could work in a future episode. Like, yeah. And that was something I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. Like, just because it doesn't work here doesn't mean it won't work somewhere else. Like that, and so, a, a joke's a good joke, eventually. Yeah, and sometimes we'll find the right spot cost. for it. I I had a bit. I I was looking through it. Two thousand one, the chicken, it's chicken Caesar salad. Any restaurant you could go in, you could order chicken Caesar salad, no matter the restaurant. And that was my bit. And Colin's like, yeah, and I'm like, you're right. So then I wrote this murder mystery, and it was all about chicken Caesar salad. Like I just put it back in there. And he's like, you got to get rid of this chicken Caesar salad stuff. And I'm like, I can't. I have to try to use it. And I couldn't. So it's, you know, well, I mean, like after years of hindsight and just being a jerk, I would say another thing is that if you are working with a group, you're going to have to respect the group. And sometimes like, you know, you shouldn't. I mean, that's kind of a shitty thing. But like sometimes someone will have an idea and you'd be like, oh. Or, you know, I want to go this direction. And sometimes you just have to say, listen, you got to get the sketch out on stage. It has to be done. Trust this person and 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 do it. And it took me, it takes me a long time. I think one reason why I work well with Colin is that we've gotten to the ends of the earth and back at this point. Like yeah. I don't I, I can trust him for 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 what direction we're going and and you know, but it's hard working with people. And it's especially if you're not making money off of it, yeah. and you, it's a big time suck. You got to go rehearse. You got to rehearse sober. God, you remember that rehearsing sober? <laughs> you got can't be drunk all the time, uh, you know. And I I know that like at a certain point, like open mics, you're just like whatever. I'm gonna go on 27 so I can you know drink or smoke a bit. But when you're doing sketch comedy, you really need to be respectful for everybody. And it took me so long, you know, 
to get to that point. And mm. I, I think he's, you know, I try not to beat myself up about it, but I know that if I listen and if I, you know, in a room with people, something bigger than us will come out of it, or at least will be done. And which is more important. So. Yeah. Being done is a good thing too. Uh, and you mentioned like, I mean, you've been doing comedy for, you know, since the eighties, basically like, you know, starting, you know, even like we can even mention the Boy Scout thing, going to college with Boris's kitchen and, you know, evolving through Boston and the heyday of San Francisco and everything. Why comedy? Why is comedy just have a hold on you all this is that time? Amazing. It does have a hold on me. I, I think like uh, I almost stopped during the pandemic and I've now like, not full going to, to clubs, but I'm going to certain rooms. I'm doing hybrid Zoom shows where I perform in studio. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of outside stuff I, because I can't stop, you know, and I, I thought I did. I love comedy. I, I think it's, um, it's, it's, it's formative, it's uh, provocative, it's cuddling, and it's something that, you know, you just want to have fun and you just like so you know, the idea of making someone laugh or hearing something that makes you laugh uh, and having an audience that's re that wants to hear it and you, you can feed off of it, it, I think it's a real positive thing. And I do know that producing shows and just going to shows and seeing regulars, you realize these shows, no matter how small, they're part of the community. People know that cafe has an open mic and I could walk over and have a drink and listen to it and maybe show up next week. So the, it builds a community and I like that. But I, I just... Uh, you know, I caught the bug. It's hard to describe. I just, I just love it, but I, I do want to make sure there's an audience and make sure I respect the audience. They don't have to like me, but I, I, I but I <laughs> want to make sure that I have a true voice. And I, I think that's what comedy is about is just trying to find your voice yeah. and be honest when you're on stage. And it's not easy, you know? No, it's not. All right. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thanks, Josh. A lot of fun. You can find Mike on Twitter at Spiegelmania. His podcast, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T, which stands for Let's Watch a Full-Length Movie on YouTube, is available wherever you find podcasts. The Great Difficulties will be performing at SF Sketchfest along with Please Leave the Bronx on Sunday, February 5th at 8 p.m. PST at Piano Fight. Two acts that performed at the first FS Sketchfest, coming back for the 20th pretty cool. Tickets and more information can be found at sfsketchfest.com. I'll be hosting two sketchubaters, one on Zoom on Friday, January 27th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, and one live and in person at Tattooed Mom in Philadelphia on Sunday, February 19th at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. You can find all the information at sketchubater.com. My first sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com. Follow Philly Sketchfest on Instagram at Philly Sketchfest. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. Like my first sketch on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy.